Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So much to get through tonight. I don't think we're going to have enough time in the 50-odd minutes or so that we're going to be on air, but we'll do our best. Later we'll be hearing from Aina Nilana, who's delving into the world of butterflies, a new book out, The Lives of Butterflies. It's a really interesting read. Actually, did you know that butterflies drink the tears of crocodiles? Crocodile tears, butterflies drink them. Can you believe it? It's true. We'll be finding all about that a little bit later on. Have you ever heard that Nile Hatch was in studio with me today? I have. I've had butterflies drinking my own tears. No I, way. I remember Did this not. in Argentina once. I was uh, I was in the, the rainforest there and all of a sudden this wonderful orange butterfly, I don't know the species, came, landed on my cheekbone mm-hmm. and then just started lapping with its proboscis at the corner of my eye. And I was just really it was really ticklish. It wasn't painful in any way and I just thought I'd let it get on with it. I was just so curious. I got, I got someone to take a picture of it for me. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the picture. I wish you could put it on the website. But no, so they, uh, if they go to me, they'll go to a Crocodile, I'm sure. Do you ever experience anything like that, Richard Collins, at your home in Malahide? No, I didn't. And I have loads of butterflies in my Bodleia bush, but none of them volunteered to remove my tears. That my tears <laughs> might cease would be wonderful. But I think Irish butterflies are more discreet. They don't intrude the way South America. I remember the butterflies in South America. They were very forward. They were huge, some of them, with big mm. eye owls, symbols on, the, on their wings and so on. Wonderful creatures. The Irish butterflies uh, keep their distance more. They're more respectable. Just remind people why butterflies have these big eyes on their wings. It is surmised that they flash the wings as a predator homing in on them and the the wings, when they open like that, look like the eyes of a bird of prey about to strike them. And it's enough to knock them off their attack sort of thing, the, the predator. The predator disappears for a moment before he cops on, in fact, that it's really a butterfly, not an owl or a falcon or something like that. That's what it is thought they do. That certainly seems to be the case. I've seen some experiments where it does have that deterrent effect. I think you can even startle humans if you see these big eyes flashing. You'll see it on some Irish butterflies, like the peacock butterfly shows very prominent eyes, almost like the eyes of an owl. Okay, they're kind of bluish, but uh, still they're kind of startling. But also uh, another part of the, the theory that they could well both be correct is if the predator, uh, it could be a bird of prey, it could be a blackbird or magpie, whatever it is, if it does actually go for the for the butterfly, what it'll do is it tends to stab at the eyes of its prey because mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the easiest way to kill it. It's the easiest way to immobilize it. And, of course, if it does that on the butterfly's wings, it's deflecting the blow away from the soft body of the butterfly. So it may end up with a hole in its wing or some missing scales. But, but it'll it can still fly. It can still fly and it'll live to, to fly another day. Yeah, but not very many other days. They don't live long. They don't need to. a couple to. of weeks. Yeah, well, it depends on the species. And some will overwinter. So uh, we get this phenomenon around Christmas Day every year when people turn on the heating in the good room and you get the small tortoiseshell butterflies coming out of the curtains where they've been hibernating all winter. Uh, so some do overwinter as adults, but many of them just have a very short lifespan as an adult. Uh, and uh, uh, But they, they, it's all about mating, really. That's all they need to do. They just need to, to live long enough mm. to pass on their genes to the next generation. Then it's job done. And You're showing your purpose. age, Niall. You're showing your age. The good room. <laughs> Have you got a good room at home, Richard Collins? Well, we have a room which uh, in other houses will be described as good, but I doubt if that particular adjective would apply in our case. Do uh, people bother anymore? Do you still have a good room now? Does your mum have a good room? Uh, well, all, all my mother's rooms. Are, go into on all my mother's day. rooms are good. I just want to stress this. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think I think you know it's certainly something I do remember as a kid coming there to come out of the curtains. And I remember in our office as well, in the Broadway Grand Office, um, over the Christmas when the heating is off, and then someone comes in in the New Year and you get the butterflies flying around. My house is so small, I just have a room. Anyway, let's get on with tonight's show. Lots of emails coming in, as always, to mooney at rte.ie, and we welcome them. But if you're going to send us in some photographs, make sure you don't disturb any wildlife in the process of taking that particular picture. And we've got some photographs in today. Let's have a listen to this first piece of audio, and it's from Katrina Marr, who has a question about, wait for it now, you're not going to believe this, snail graveyards. While I was walking through uh, the pine forest at the back of my house, which is in uh, Duffery in Hackettstown in County Carlow, I was in a very dark part of the woods, which would be kind of off my usual route. But I came across quite an unusual sight. And I was wondering then if the panel would be able to kind of shed any light on what might be happening there. In the very dark part on the ground was a pile 
of hundreds of empty snail shells and they were spread over a small enough area. And I was wondering how this snail graveyard came to be. Um, I looked up to see if there was any nest above me, but I couldn't see any evidence of a bird up there. Were you thinking it was the leprechauns? <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, it did seem a little bit unusual. Um, it isn't something I'd ever seen. And there was quite a vast array of different types of snail shells. I was wondering if they were doing some sort of um, ceremony there or if there was something more uh, mystical happening maybe among the snails that I hadn't been aware of before. Now, how often do you walk in that area and when was the last time you were there? I would walk there fairly regularly, but actually that part of the woods, it would be when I'm more in a kind of an adventurous sort of uh, mood or going into kind of the darker part. I've actually seen a fawn there recently um, and I I was on a little bit of a kind of a scouting um, to see if I could see her again. She's been uh, named Faunula by the rest of us there. Um, So, uh, yeah, it wouldn't be too, like, I mean, it wouldn't be in that part very often. So the reason I ask you that is I just want to get an idea over what period of time these snail shells had gathered, you see. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, it was just the one time that, I, that I'd seen them there like that. So I have no idea what the time scale is. So you want us to put it to the panel to Richard and Niall to see if they have any answers? Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Okay, Katrina, your wish is my command. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks. Bye. So that was Katrina in County Carlo. Richard Collins, what have you got to say about this snail graveyard? Well, Katrina, I think it's more a snail executions site than a graveyard. It's the Tyburn for snails, I suspect. Uh, it's what biologists call a song thrush anvil, a stone, or sometimes a log or something like that. The song thrushes can't break open large snail shells. So they fly to a place where there is something hard, like a rock, and they bang the snail off that to smash open the shell and make off with the nice soft body inside it's food for them protein and they do this these anvils become regular places they're like the shop the supermarket and they come down with their snails break them leave the shells behind and fly off uh, with the, the snails to feed their young or to eat themselves and i suspect that's what you are seeing that's absolutely right. Yes, you can see that in the photographs, the uh, snail shells are arranged very, very carefully, or we're not, we're not carefully, arranged very much around that stone. Uh, and that's because that is, as you said, Richard, the thrush anvil. The, the song thrush has been coming down, bashing those snail shells on the stone, breaking them open, eating the contents and leaving the, the shells behind. Uh, the song thrush is a very common bird across Ireland. The numbers have declined a bit in recent years, but they're still very common in all of our gardens. People will know them. They're brown above, speckled below, famously spotted on the chest. And the song thrush is is the only Irish bird that does this. So if you see piles of snail shells around a stone, you can be certain it was a song thrush that did it because the other birds don't do this. Why not? I mean, you think they would see the song thrush doing it and they think, well, he's getting food. It seems fairly handy. And I've seen rooks along the seafront picking up mussels, flying up in the air, dropping them to the ground. They might be on a pebble beach, a stone beach. They bang off the stones. The shell cracks open and they get the meat out. So they're all learning from each other. Yes, and crows are particularly good at learning uh, from behaviour of others they're very observant most other birds aren't and it seems that the song thrush probably isn't consciously thinking about what to do here it's evolved this behaviour it's helped it to survive in a niche um, uh, alongside other birds that can't so well feed on that snail supply of food so if you take the song thrush for example it's a bit smaller than a blackbird it's found in the same kind of habitat mm. and the blackbird would tend to outcompete it for the other foods that the song thrush likes they love to eat worms they love to eat berries so does the blackbird so does the missile thrush which is another bigger bird so the song thrush doesn't have it all its own way. So it's evolved to find its own niche. It's the only one of those species that can that can specialise in feeding on snails. It's not that a missile thrush or a blackbird won't occasionally eat a snail, but they don't actively seek them out and specialise in feeding on them. They haven't got this amazing habit of breaking them open. And these birds, it seems, they, they don't learn from watching the behaviours of others. That's not how they feed. It's not how their world works. They, they've evolved their own particular niche. They're kind of set in their ways and they don't have to be adaptable like that. Birds like rooks and other species of crow, uh, they do break open these uh, the, the, the mollusks that you see mm-hmm. along the seashore. They do that very much so. But 
remember, when it comes to snails, their beaks are stronger. A beak of a rook is quite a hefty thing. And in many cases, they can actually break open those snail shells. Or in some cases, with the smaller snails, they can just swallow them whole and uh, they get the benefit of the calcium in the shell as well as the, 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 the soft body inside. So they're getting a full meal. This behaviour benefits other birds. Isn't that curious? Why? There was a paper about three years ago in the Journal of the Linnaean Society. And research there showed that the number of bird species coming along to the anvil, not to break open a shell, but to collect the fragments of previous shells, was 54. 54 species of birds were found to come in and make off with fragments of shells. Now, what did they do that for? Well, they were forming eggs, and eggs need calcium. So calcium, the shell provides excellent calcium. So they flew off with this sort of thing. I wonder, Niall, if you ever saw a thing called the Great Ant Shrike in South America. The Great Ant Shrike does this. But the interesting thing about the Great Ant Shrike is that it's only doing it fairly recently. It breaks open the shell, just like our song thrushes do. But the snail it's breaking open only arrived in the areas where it does this in the 1980s. So this is a new behaviour for Great Ant Shrikes. Perhaps it's not that long there for song thrushes either. I wonder if it's recorded back in time. Gilbert White might have mentioned it he would mention all these kind of things I don't remember in his book whether he did it would certainly be interesting to know, Richard. Yes, it's so uh, ubiquitous among song thrushes now, right across their range, all across uh, Europe, um, that it suggests to me it's been around for, for quite a long time because the song thrush, as far as we know, hasn't really expanded its range. And we've had snails um, in that area since before humans were around, I would I would expect. So it's hard to know, though. We'll, we'll never know the answer to that. It certainly is fascinating behaviour. And I've witnessed in my own garden the other birds coming down to feed on those fragments of snail shells because I've deliberately put out a thrush anvil in my garden and the song thrush is a great help to me in protecting um, my my lettuces and the other plants that I have growing in the garden because it clears out the snails for me. So it's this wonderful natural cycle. They get rid of the snails and then they're also helping to form the eggshells of the blue tits that then feed on the caterpillars that are coming to my cabbages. All of this is a wonderful natural cycle in a, in a garden that's just a really, really small. But, but why doesn't the thrush eat the snail shell if it's full of calcium? Well, for, with, with these big snails, think of the garden snail, that, that's too big for the thrush to be able to swallow. It wouldn't be able to digest that. I'm sure like the other birds, especially female birds that need to make the eggs. I'm sure the song thrush does eat a few fragments of that but it doesn't need massive quantities of calcium. If it had too much that would be counterproductive as well. It doesn't need all of that calcium uh, because snail shells and eggshells are made of the same substance, this calcium carbonate. Uh, so uh, it doesn't need all of that and uh, it wouldn't have the digestive system that maybe a crow would have that would find it so easy to grind up all those snail shells. So it just wants to eat the soft protein inside mainly. I think it's after the main course, it skips the dessert. If you were a song thrush and you got this fine, big, juicy snail, beautiful thing, and you consumed it, you wouldn't be interested in boring old fragments of shell after it. So I suspect there's an element of that in it. Now, it's an interesting reflection on the blackbird. Blackbirds are a much-loved bird, and we think very highly of them, and rightly so, but they have a weakness, piracy. They hear the tapping of the song thrush on the anvil, bank tap, 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 and they home in on it and they swipe the snail from the poor old song thrush. Now, an interesting observation about starlings. Starlings do the same thing, but they are not compromised by um, blackbirds. They may get the snail or whatever in their mouth, but and then blackbird tries to get it from the starling. The song thrush haven't provided it, but the starling is able for the blackbird. He's smaller, lighter, but he's tougher. The blackbirds get their comeuppance in the midst of their thievery from the Starling. Hmm. Speaking of blackbirds, Nora Stewart has been on to us with an email. She's living in Dundrum in Dublin 14. She says, Dear Derek, I've just been listening to you on RTE Radio 1, as I do most Mondays. Following your discussion of birds' diets during dry or wet weather, this is some time ago, during the recent dry spell, we twice saw a male blackbird, speaking of blackbirds, pecking at a frog. Following the frog as they tried to jump away and bringing it back to the grass for uninterrupted pecking. 
I presume, she says, eating. Certainly, there was nothing to find once the blackbird had finished. This behaviour was not one we had seen before. There were very few worms or slugs visible at that time, so I presume the bird was hungry. Is this normal behaviour for blackbirds or was this a particularly progressive one widening its diet to suit the environmental conditions. What do you say about that, Niall? Well, I think that that's absolutely spot on. I think that this blackbird was feeling the pinch. It was hard for it to find worms in the dry weather when, when the ground gets so hard, the worms retreat down low and they're out of the range of the blackbirds. They can't peck under the ground to get them. And it really was trying in a pinch to try to find a new source of food. They are very adaptable in that way. So uh, we know that if blackbirds eating frogs, it's very rare. It has been recorded in the literature, but I've never actually seen it myself. I do remember some time ago on the programme, we had a listener who wrote into us saying that they had a blackbird that was catching tadpoles in their garden pond. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, so we knew that they would eat tadpoles here, but I haven't come across one eating a frog in Ireland. It has been recorded, I know, somewhere in England and a few other places as well. But I think that's what it is. It's opportunism. This blackbird must have been hungry, thinking this it looks something like something that's edible. I'll give this a go and hopefully manage to eat it. It was probably pretty gruesome because it obviously wouldn't be able to swallow a frog hole. It must have been pecking bits off it. I imagine it was pretty grotesque. Yuck. But the thing is as well that a lot of frogs, they, they, they tend to to not be tame, but they're not so worried about predators because for a lot of mammals, particularly if, if, if a, a dog or a fox or something was to eat a frog, and some of them make the mistake of doing that, but only once because when they do, it makes them violently ill. They vomit. There's toxins in, in the skin of the mm. frog that really make them very, very sick, make them feel terrible. And they learn pretty quickly, I'm going to stay away from these, these weird hopping creatures. Uh, but with a lot of birds, <laughs> their digestive systems are different. We know that some birds specialise in eating frogs. So um, the bu- buzzards, a big bird of prey, they love to eat frogs. Herons, particularly the grey heron, loves to eat frogs. And with bird like a blackbird, although it wouldn't be its usual food, it's obviously found a good source of protein in a pinch here. A man named Berthold back in the 1970s kept blackbirds in captivity and fed them only on plant food. He didn't feed them any animal food and they all died. When he gave them a little sprinkling of beetle larvae, they managed to survive. It shows that, in fact, blackbirds need protein. They need animal food. And you can imagine what happens when the drought comes on and the pressure and there's not so much water. They can then catch the frogs more easily. They've been known to catch snails, lizards, newts. They will catch all these things. They need animal material, animal protein so badly they have to turn to that. So it is a lifeline for them in these adverse circumstances. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it. It just shows how adaptable birds are and how they have must have these cravings. Their bodies must be telling them what they need because blackbirds can eat, subsist mainly on vegetarian food if they need to, especially in the autumn and the winter. They eat huge amounts of berries that are on bushes. But when they get the animal protein, they will. I've seen blackbirds going for things like cat food. Uh, you mentioned snails there. We're talking about the song thrush, obviously. I have seen a blackbird in my own garden catching snails. But unlike the song thrush, it doesn't know to break them open. Mm. As we discussed, they haven't learned that behaviour. What it was doing was it was obviously holding a fleshy part of the snail. It was taking its beak into the, the opening of the shell and then was just shaking the thing back and forth violently until after maybe two or three minutes it managed to t- tear a fragment of the, of the snail's body off ate that and then went back to it again so I imagine the feeding process on, on the, uh, the, the frog was probably similarly messy and, and gruesome Now Richard you're a fan of the Natural History Museum in Dublin Indeed I am yes, Have I you ever seen I the took- sunfish in there? Oh, always. I bring the grandchildren and I always show them the sunfish. They think it's fierce, but of course it's not a bit fierce. It's it's a most docile creature, but it's a wonderful thing. The one there probably weighs over a ton. That they can weigh an awful lot more than that, apparently. Uh, yes, Terry, why do you ask? Oh, because Terry was in there. Terry's on the case. Have you ever seen them, Niall? I have. I've seen, obviously, the specimen in the Natural History Museum, but I do remember seeing one in France or off the coast of France once coming up in the water. It turned up on its side and it, it genuinely so you and I are talking with this desk in front of us a semicircular rather large table it looked like a massive semicircular table in the water oh they can be two to three metres in length they're massive absolutely massive, massive. Yeah. as yeah. Richard said they weigh several tonne yeah huge huge absolutely and I remember there was famously one in a big aquarium in the north part of Jutland in Denmark uh, and it was the, the pride of, the, of the, the, the aquarium there a huge big glass tank and unfortunately there was a huge fire and it killed the sunfish and so many others it basically boiled 
boiled the water and killed so many oh fish they, they lost their specimen. But they're f- normally found in tropical waters, Nile. That's right, tropical, subtropical waters where, where the temperatures would be a bit warmer. The place where I saw the one in France was in the Mediterranean mm. where the temperature was nice and warm. But what we're seeing is with climate change, we are seeing ocean temperatures rising. We are seeing sunfish moving further and further north. I know they're being reported uh, more frequently in more northerly waters now. Including Irish waters, it must be said, and we'll do something on this in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, our man Terry Flanagan paid a visit to the Natural History Museum in Dublin. It's a great place to visit, is it not, Terence Flanagan? Yes, it is indeed, Derek. I was in the Natural History Museum, a great place to visit. You know, that was built back in 1857. It's nearly 170 years old, nearly. And you know what? You stroll in the back door and it's just like walking back in time. And of course, everyone loves it. They've something like 300,000 visitors per year. And of course, it's free. It's the ideal location for a visit on a, a wet Sunday afternoon. Now, despite its relatively small size, there's a vast collection of over 10,000 specimens on display in its galleries. Wow. And that's just a tiny fraction of the estimated two million specimens in the museum. And one of the most unusual for me has got to be the sunfish. It's so unfish-like and the the children, they're amazed by it. It's got this huge flat disc-like shaped body. It's bigger than me and it's got this really startled look on its face. So while I was there, I met up with the keeper of the museum, Paolo Viscardi, and he filled me in on the life cycle of this incredible animal. Here we go, Terry. Here's an interesting specimen. Yes, this is the sunfish. This is the sunfish. And Um, it's absolutely huge. Yeah, it's, uh, they, they do get bigger, but um, they, they're one of the biggest, in fact, I think that's the biggest um, bony fish that you get, and yeah. they can get to a couple of metres across. Yeah, you mentioned there it's a bony fish, because most fish are cartilaginous, is that right? Well, the sharks are cartilaginous. Yeah. There are a lot of bony fish out there. Most, mm. most fish are bony fish, but the sharks will be the ones that tend to get big. So you have things like yeah. the basking shark, the whale shark. Those are absolutely enormous. Mm. Most of the bony fish don't get that big. If I asked any of the kids around here, before they see this fish, I say, draw a fish for me. They'll never draw anything that looks like this fish here. This is so different to a normal fish, for want of a better word. It is like the sun, or it's like a a large football. I would say the sun is more spherical. Yeah. Um, So it looks like something in the... It's a disc. They're they're what I would refer to as a discoidal fish. So a disco fish, if you like. And they are really unusual because they, they swim in such a totally different way to any other fish because they they don't use their tail to swim most fish you know they they move in a kind of a a nice sinusoidal that kind of uh, wiggly movement and that is what pushes the water with their tails and that's what propels them forwards with these guys they actually swim a bit like a bird flies yeah so they have these big fins at the top and the bottom you can see there yeah huge dorsal fin and the uh, the ventral fin there and they actually flap them like wings this fish is as big as me yeah uh, a little bit bigger if anything and they're huge they are huge and they get to that size and you know these big flat kind of disc shaped bodies and they're, they're called sunfish partly because you know they are big and round a bit like the sun but also because they they bask on their sides um, so they, because of the way they swim with this kind of flapping motion a bit like a bird they'll often go just beneath the surface of the water and they look like um, the sun reflected in the water sometimes. Can I ask a silly question if, if a fish is that close to the water and it's exposing itself to the sun do they ever become sunburned? It's a great question actually I don't think they become sunburned because the layer of scales that they have um, is offers some protection so in the same way that hair helps to kind of protect us from the sun, which is why we have hair at the top of our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, well, most of, us. most of us do, not all of us. <laughs> I, I'm getting a bit thin up there myself, but partly that's there to help protect you from the sun's rays on the top of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, hair is very, very useful for that. Feathers do the same thing, and that's why birds can be out in the sun all the time. They don't get sunburnt. And fish and reptiles generally, um, their skin is is protected by that layer of, of keratin, which is what scales are made of. They're such an unusual fish, and I know, because it says it here, they're actually found in Irish waters. Yeah, absolutely. There are quite a few spotted in Irish waters. Um, now, they are getting quite endangered, actually. They're, they're getting scarce, um, and they tend to be uh, victims of kind of overfishing. They, they, they bycatch. People don't catch them for them. They, catch, you know, they go out um, fishing for things like tuna and so on. 
and these guys get caught on the lines and you know, they tend not to survive very well. So their population has decreased by about 30% in the last kind of 10 years or so. What, what do they feed on? They feed on jellyfish. Right. Which, there are plenty of jellyfish out there. They're actually, so they're good. So yeah, yeah no, they're a useful thing. But of course, um, you know, things that feed on jellyfish tend to come a cropper when it comes to things like plastic pollution as well. Yeah, yeah. Because um, they think that a plastic bag floating in the ocean is a jellyfish and then they, they ingest them. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's an ongoing problem. It's the same for a lot of seabirds as well. Things like fulmers in particular feed on a lot of the smaller um, organisms that float in, or organic material that floats on the surface of the water. And they pick up a lot of plastic because of it. They're not very fast swimmers. No, no, they're very slow swimmers. They swim with these big kind of slow flaps, big undulations from these fins, and that's what moves them around. But they hunt jellyfish, um, so they they don't need to be fast. And they swim close to the surface, so would you ever come in contact with them if you were swimming? Yeah, you can do, actually. Um, It's not that unusual, but they tend to be a little bit further out. They don't tend to hang around near beaches and so Mm. on. They are, as you say, quite large, and although they will go on their sides, they'll also kind of swim upright as well, so... They, and if you did encounter one, are they poisonous? Do they sting? Can they bite you? No, no, they're, they're big, gentle giants, really. They're not going to cause you any harm. Isn't the eye very distinctive? Yeah, it has a, this very kind of beady eye that's staring out at you. Um, and like I say, the kind of shock ex- shocked expression almost. Um, and that would have been installed by the taxidermist who prepared the specimen. Because, of course, when you take a specimen from the wild, you, you can't just put it straight on display because it will rot and stink the place out and you know you really don't want a two meter wide fish rotting in your uh, museum very much it's, and it's course, not a great it, idea it, it must be more difficult to to stuff if that's the correct term a fish as compared to say a mammal yeah it is um fish are quite difficult with with fur it's much easier to kind of cover up any mistakes really mm. um the form of the body is is also more familiar to a certain extent fish skin can be quite difficult to work with because you've got the scales and the skin itself is very very thin usually so the taxidermists who mounted this specimen were Roland, uh, were um, williams and son which is a dublin-based taxidermist uh, they've and, done a great job oh they've done a great job um, i mean it's not it's not 100 percent accurate but it's pretty good um well i'm impressed oh, no, i know i i love this specimen and um, the only thing is it's not much fun to move uh, i've had to move it before and uh, it's it's heavy and awkward and yeah i'd rather not have to move it again so anyone visiting the natural history museum the dead zoo this is one animal that you should definitely get to see. I definitely recommend taking a look at it. It's, uh, if only for the comedic co- expression on its face. Um, it always looks a little bit surprised, a little bit startled. But I would say don't come during the school holidays because you'll have a lot of competition. You, you'll see that it's pretty busy it today. Certainly it certainly is. Um, and we, we find that we've, uh, we've been very, very busy for the last while, which is fantastic in many ways, but also... Uh, we want to make sure that people enjoy their experience as well. Thank you very much indeed. Terry Flanagan and Paolo Viscardi and the Natural History Museum is open on Sundays and you can find all the details on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now I mentioned butterflies earlier. The Lives of Butterflies, a natural history of our planet's butterfly life is a new book which showcases the extraordinary diversity of the world's butterflies while exploring their life histories, behaviour, conservation and other aspects of these most fascinating and beguiling insects. Co-author and Associate Professor of Entomology at Washington State University David James spoke with Aina Nilauna earlier. Hello, Aina. It's very nice to speak to you. David, have you always been interested in butterflies? Well, I've, I've been a butterfly person all my life. I was eight years old, and, and as you can probably tell from my accent, I used to live in England, and I, I found caterpillars in the garden uh, feeding on my parents' um, flowers, um, and I was intrigued by these woolly bear caterpillars and uh, decided to rear them out, and they produced beautiful garden tiger moths, and uh, I was captivated by that, and uh, so I went to university with the aim of... Uh, of becoming, if not a butterfly person, an insect person. So, you know, the butterflies led me to, you know, become uh, enamoured by insects generally. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm one of the few butterfly people that um, have uh, developed an interest um, in butterflies in childhood. Actually, there's more in the UK and Ireland uh, that, that have done that, you know, during their childhood than, say, here in America. But, yeah, it's it's been a lifetime of butterflies for me. 
Now, it's great to have an expert because on this programme, we're all supposed to be the experts and we are generally experts, but to have a real expert on a particular subject is great. So I'm going to ask you all the questions that people have been asking me and I've been trying to get around them for years. Now, the first question is, what exactly is a butterfly as opposed to a moth? Or is there any such thing as a butterfly as such? Is it just a subset of moths? Well, actually, butterflies are a subset of moths. Um, They did originate from moths. Moths were the original butterflies, if you like. Um, But we can separate butterflies today from the moths by a number of criteria. Um, But unfortunately, there's no single criteria that will work for every um, butterfly. The best one is um, looking at the antennae of the butterfly or moth that you have in your hand or, or you can see in the, on the flower. And if it has a, a clubbed antenna, then that is going to be a butterfly. If it's a, a wiry antenna or feathery antenna, then that's going to be a moth. That works for like 99% of butterflies and moths probably, but you know there, there are the occasional exceptions. There are seven families of butterflies and one of them, the moth-like ones that appear at crepuscular times were often classified before this as moths and they of course have have the different antennae but what they also have which I thought was fascinating they have hearing organs on their wings tell me more yes they do Um, and also with some species on on their legs as well so so yeah it it sort of challenges our concept of uh, where hearing organs should be but um but yeah, I mean, butterflies have adapted over millennia to different situations. And so that, that's just part of their adaptation. We have had a huge range in size in butterflies looking at your book. The, the biggest one seems to have a wingspan of 30 centimetres, which is a foot in old money. This is the Queen Alexander birdwing out in New Guinea. Is, is that the biggest one? I mean, that seems a massive size for a butterfly. Yes, that birdwing and there's, there's some other birdwing species too are the largest butterflies in the world. And uh, yeah, they're, they're truly huge, massive, as you say. But in temperate regions, we don't see butterflies anywhere near that size. Um, it's in the tropics that you get the bird wings. And so most butterflies are, are more of the size that, that you and I are familiar with. And, and there's some very small ones as well that most people actually don't see, you know, um, because they're so small and they fly fast and, uh, and you don't actually see them until they settle on a flower or something. Why are the huge ones in the tropics? Has it to do with the fact that the weather is warmer and that they being cold-blooded creatures get enough energy to fly that in more northern climes they're lucky to fly at all, never mind to have huge big wings activated by our lesser sun? Or is there other reasons? Has it to do with food? Yes, it's probably to do with um, uh, being able to produce generation after generation in the tropics. You know, they they can continue breeding all year. So they've had opportunities to evolve faster than, than butterflies in temperate regions. So, you know, the large wings obviously are advantageous to the butterflies that have them, um, but maybe not to all species. So, yeah, that's an interesting question that, you know, we don't really know why there are some butterflies with very large wings, um, but it must have, you know, something to do with their, their ability to survive and, uh, and also to attract mates probably to, to make themselves very visible to the opposite sex. That's all fine and dandy, attracting the opposite sex, but you could be attracting predators as well if you have great big wings and movement. And I, and they seem to operate their wings together. I mean, is the front wing connected or tied on in some way to the back wing so that they, they fly as one unit rather than as in dragonflies where all the four wings fly independently? Yes, they, they have a coupling mechanism where the four wings um, all, you know, connect. And, uh, and again, that, that's something that's evolved over millennia again. Um, butterflies actually don't really need the hind wings, uh, the lower wings. They, they can actually fly with just the, the fore wings, the, the front wings. Um, but having the hind wings allows them to be more manoeuvrable um, and able to escape predators probably better if they have that manoeuvrability. So again, it's something that, you know, has happened over time and the plan of a butterfly now is is the, the best plan there is for a butterfly. 
So that the, their anatomy then allows this to happen, that the, the, the wings are joined together front and back, which is unusual and doesn't happen in other four-winged insects. Correct. Yes. I mean, it's something that, that sets them apart from other insects that, that have four wings. So, yeah, uh, the moths, we can put them in the same group as well. But uh, they, they don't use their wings in quite the same way as but most butterflies do. Um, and as we said at the beginning, butterflies are an offshoot of moths anyway. A much smaller group as well. I mean, there's, there's far more moths species than there are butterflies. The butterflies, of course, are the adult of the group. They start off as eggs, you have your caterpillars, you have your chrysalis, and then finally you have your butterflies. I always thought that they didn't eat as butterflies, that they did all their eating as caterpillars. That was like filling the tank up with petrol. And when they ran out of energy, that was it. But you have an excellent chapter in the book about butterflies, what they eat and how much they actually need to use high energy, sugary drinks like nectar. Now, do they actually have stomachs and intestines? Do they produce wastes and droppings? What kind of a digestive system have butterflies? They have their proboscis, which they stick into the flowers to receive the nectar. What happens after that? Well, the nectar gets transported through a very simple um, alimentary canal, you know, a gut system, um, and, and absorbed into the tissues as, you know, as in any other animal. But the whole system is very simplified. Um, so it's just one tube going through the body, basically. And, and yes, they do excrete at the other end. All butterflies, I believe, feed as adults, um, unlike moths, where some don't. And, and as you you know, indicated, you know, they get all their energy from the caterpillar stage, uh, these particular moths. But but butterflies, yes, um, are obviously well known for feeding on flowers um, and taking nectar, um, sugary solutions, um, which is what they need for survival. Um, and, of course, in their quest for nectar, they also um, act as pollinators. They, they feed on nectar indeed, and I can see why. But apparently, reading further in that chapter, I discovered that they feed on crocodile tears, they feed on urine, they feed on blood, on dung. What are they at? Why don't they stick to the flowers? What's going on? What are they doing with the crocodile tears? Is it that they're not a dangerous thing? Will the crocodiles not gobble them? Tell us more. Yes, it's a, it's a little known fact, I guess, that, that butterflies, particularly male butterflies, I have to admit that it, it is the male of the, of the species that prefers, well, not prefers, but they need some other food as well. And, and what they're seeking is things like salts and minerals. So the crocodile tears is, you know, a source of salt for the butterflies. And the reason the males need these extra things is it helps them with their reproduction. They're able to mate more often and more effectively if they have these additional salts and minerals um, alongside the nectar. And in fact, some male butterflies actually present the female with a gift of uh, minerals and salts in a package uh, along with the sperm when they mate. So, you know, there's a method to their madness, I guess, that, that they will feed on these other things, but, but for a reason. And uh, you mentioned crocodile tears, but there's lots of other things that they'll go for too, like uh, animal drop-ins, mud. They, they get a lot of uh, minerals and salts from, from just mud. Sometimes you'll see butterflies just drinking from wet mud. Um, and that's, again, males looking for minerals and salts. Do they actually land on the crocodile's face to drink the tears? I'm just trying to imagine this. And what has the crocodile got to say about it? Yes, I, I, th I think the crocodile is probably, you know, not really worried about a butterfly. He's thinking of uh, larger pieces of food, probably. And so, yeah, the, the butterflies, um, you know, just come and go and uh, the, the crocodiles don't take any notice at all. Other animals um, around their eyes, too, um, butterflies will sometimes get the salt from. And the other thing that they do that interests us as people is that if you're out hiking and you're sweaty, they will often land on your arm and drink the sweat from your arm it can actually be quite annoying sometimes in, in not leaving you alone uh, because they're so fixated on getting their their shot of salt 
But anyway, moving on to their, their mating, you have a whole uh, section on that, obviously. I was interested that the environmentalist Miriam Rothschild described monarch males as male chauvinist pigs. Without any batting an eyelid, this is what she says. They're male chauvinist pigs. So what are the male monarchs doing to warrant such a description by Miriam Rothschild? Well, it's well-deserved, really, because uh, the male monarch is, is very different from many other male butterflies. Many other male butterflies um, serenade their female partner with pheromones and uh, and courtship dances and uh, all the romantic things that you might think the butterflies do. Um, and that, that is the case with, with most butterfly species. But the male monarch is an exception to that. Um, and there's probably others, but this the male monarch is the most... Uh, familiar and most famous example of this where it dispenses with the use of pheromones um, they used to use pheromones apparently because they still have the organs that produce pheromones but they're not functioning anymore so instead the male monarch simply grabs the female and often in mid-air they'll be flying and the male will see a female flying and just land on top of her in mid-air and drag her to the ground just fall to the ground and forcibly mate with her on the ground with uh, no preamble, no no pheromones, no no romantic courtship at all. But it's basically um, rape, and that's what Miriam Rothschild was referring to when she she called the male monarch the nature's prime example of a male chauvinist pig. Yeah, apparently it's not only females that they jump on. They they jump on other males. They jump on other species of butterflies. Anything that moves seems to be prey for them because the females don't want to be mated more than once or twice, whereas these males can seem to do it all day, every day. And the female monarchs, apparently, you were saying in the book, once they've got mated, they come out early in the morning before the males are up and they keep close to the ground so they'll be out of their radar and they generally avoid them. But at least the male monarch doesn't insert a chastity belt as other species of butterflies do. The males put a chastity belt on the female when they've mated with her so nobody else can get nearer. Who does that? Which ones do that? Yes, they're, they're a group of mountain butterflies called Parnassians or Apollo butterflies. And there's some in Europe, um, not in Ireland, unfortunately, or, or Britain. But in, in the Swiss Alps, you'll find these butterflies. And there's some in North America too, these Apollo butterflies. And yes, you're, you're exactly right. They've actually gone a step further. Their courtship is, is much more moderate than the, the monarch courtship. So it, it's quite pleasant. Um, but when it's finished, the male, you know, needs to preserve his genetic material. He wants to be the last mater, if you like, for that particular female. And so to ensure that another male doesn't usurp his genes, he will put a chastity belt on the butterfly. And uh, this chastity belt is, it's not really a belt, of course, it's actually a, he secretes um a structure, I guess is the best way to describe it, that that covers the male, uh, sorry, the female's um, reproductive parts so that no other male can mate with her. And so that's that's how he leaves her. So, you know, she's, she's mated once um, with that successful male and he ensures that his genetic material will be the material that will produce the progeny uh, between that female and male. So... It's, it's quite a remarkable thing, really, but um, it, it's confined to just that group of butterflies. We know that birds migrate, they come to breed and they go to warmer countries, but apparently lots of different butterflies do this too. This, this, these famous monarchs we were speaking of migrate up and down the length of, of North America, but on this side of the waters we have the painted ladies, the, the small tort, not the painted ladies and the red admirals that do this as well. And in the case of birds, we know lots about them because we've been putting wings on their legs for a hundred years and finding them and knowing where they went. But lately it, it appears that you can tag butterflies too. That must be a great leap if you can tag a migrating butterfly and see where it goes. 
Yes, indeed. Um, it's revolutionized the, the way we think about migrating butterflies. Um, it's mostly being done with the monarch butterfly. I mean, the butterfly's got to be large enough, and the monarch is large. It's, it has a three to four inch wingspan. So there is enough room to put a small adhesive tag label, um, which is what we do. And on that label um, is an email address and a, a serial number. Um, and, and it stands out. We, we put it on the hind wing of the butterfly. Um, and so when it's on a flower with its wings up you can see it and people see these butterflies and these days of course with iPhones and cheap cameras they will take pictures and, and send us a picture to the email address on the tag and so from from this tagging we've we've learned a lot about the monarch butterfly and its uh, migration particularly here in western North America where I am um, but also the migration to, to Mexico the, the famous colonies there as well unfortunately the tags are a bit too large at this point to put on painted lady butterflies because they're about half the size but excitingly there's new technology coming along where we may in the future be able to put radio chips on the butterfly you know, we're trying to make them small enough at the moment and we haven't quite got there but soon they will be small enough to be able to put on a, a butterfly like a painted lady and to be able to track them electronically with the tags the, the label tags um, we have to tag a lot of butterflies to get um, you know, a few recoveries. Um, but with electronic tagging, we won't need to tag as many um, because we will know, you know, the destination and the, what happens to any of the butterflies that we electronically tag. Um, so that will be another revolution to our understanding of uh, migrating butterflies. Well, it's a great book, The Lives of Butterflies, a natural history of our planet's butterfly life. And if you want a nice read, a really exciting read about the whole range of interesting things butterflies all over the world do, you could do worse than get it. Thank you very much for speaking to me tonight, David. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. All the details you need on the lives of butterflies to be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Hello, Claire to all stations. Just to confirm, the last bird of 2023 has flown from the cages. That's bird number nine and flying well from all reports. Over. That's the voice of Claire Hardman, a conservation ranger with the National Parks and Wildlife Service, communicating with her colleagues at the release site of the nine remaining osprey chicks that were brought to Ireland from Norway as part of the osprey reintroduction programme being undertaken by the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Now, originally there were ten, one died, nine successfully fledged. So what lies ahead of them? Well, these birds will hang around the area for a while. They will continue to be fed. But eventually, instinct will take over and they will head south for Africa. It's a journey of some 5,000 kilometres. And along the way, they will encounter many dangers. If they survive, it's hoped that in about two years from now, they will return to Ireland, find mates, breed and start the next generation. But is it likely? Zoe Smith has been monitoring these birds at the release site for the past six weeks or so. She's very familiar with the birds and is confident that they're all healthy enough to make the journey. And if they manage to avoid serious mishaps, should return to Ireland from where they were fledged. So in a natural nest, uh, when it comes to migration in the autumn, the female is the first to leave. So she sets off on her migration. She leaves the male to keep feeding the remaining young. And then he leaves and the juveniles are the ones that, that leave last. And then the juveniles will spend a whole year in um, Africa where they're on their wintering grounds. So they'll spend that whole year just um, not returning. And then after the second year, they come back and the males are very sight faithful, so they tend to come back to where they were hatched out and where they regard as their home. So this is what we're hoping from this project, that the males will return and they are critical to um, establishing the population. So the male comes back first and he starts to build up the nest platform or the tree nest and then he will get fish and start displaying, trying to bring in, draw in and attract his mate. And then the females are the second to return, but they are not as sight faithful and they can go many kilometres from where they were actually hatched out and they will be attracted in by seeing a male and his big nest. And they're also semi-colonial, so they like to kind of be in an area where there are other birds around as well. 
So when you say displaying, what do you mean he displays with a fish oh, after okay. building the nest? <laughs> I mean display. So he does a, a type of a flight that we describe as a display. So he's got his fish and he's flying up and down. And we call that a display flight, which is trying to attract females' attention and get her to come back and start breeding with him. Presumably he only does this if he sees a female in the area. Oh, you can see them actually doing that even before the um, females have returned. I'm not sure if they're practicing, but they're also defending their territory from other males because they want to show the other males, like, this is my territory, you find another nest site. So you will see them doing it as they get back. Mm, okay. <laughs> and you've seen this display, have you? <laughs> yeah, I've seen that in the Highlands of Scotland uh, this spring. So that's a really amazing site and really interesting. I bet it is. Yeah. And are they always successful? No, not always. You can have females that, you know, one of the couple may die and they may have to repair with somebody new. We've seen there's various nest cameras nowadays, which is really interesting and helpful to learn a lot of information. So you can have original pairs or, there, for example, I think there was a, a male that mated with a new female and then the original female returned, chased her off and <laughs> things like this. So you can see many different types of behaviour. But it's she who chooses him, not the other way around. Yeah, usually it's the female that comes back second and chooses the male. Yeah, so he's got to be on top form sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, he and needs to the build, right kind of fish. build a nice nest. Build a nice nest. Yeah. And the nest is huge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They're constantly adding to the nest, bringing in sticks and nest material, nest lining, like turf and moss and things and like that. And is there a reason for that? Well, they just need a, a good nest to be able to breed successfully because she's going to lay some quite fragile eggs, so they need to have a soft lining and a secure lining so that there's no risk to those eggs. And what are the chances of these birds coming back here? Well I think it's roughly about 70 to 75 percent mortality so we're only going to get about 30 percent of the birds coming back but we hope that as we've done this um, release in a very calm and thoughtful way and they haven't had much human interaction that they should feel comfortable and secure to come back to this nest site. Tell us about how you release them. We do what we call a staggered release and a soft, well, and soft release, so it's a very calm release. There's no noise. The pens are opened very gently without them seeing a human. For example, this year we've done a staggered release. We've, we've opened one pen of two birds and they came out and they felt they knew that the other birds were still in the pen. So that's held them in the area and brought them back to feed in the area because we then put food on top of the pen and other feeding tables. So that's held them in the area, but it's also showed the birds that are in the pen what's going on outside and kind of got they've got the instinct to go out and feed so it works both ways and it's been really successful because we've had the birds still around the release site coming to feed and roosting around here which is the objective so that's been brilliant because you want those birds to regard this place as home yeah exactly and we want them to come back after their migration to come and breed here in a few years time over what period of time would you release all birds over a few days we'd release the birds over a few days but we have to take into consideration things like the weather conditions and the conditions of the bird. We must make sure they're all healthy and ready to go and that they've got good visibility and clear conditions to be able to be released. Just one thing, Zoe. It's not that they come back to where they hatch. It's that they come back to where they fledge because I've had that same question asked. Like, these birds hatched in Norway oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, and were brought here to yeah. Ireland. So people <laughs> really ask, well, why don't they just migrate back to Norway? The thing is that they tend, for whatever reason, it's the imprinting of where they fledged from they come back to. So, because people are going, why are we releasing Norwegian birds here? Aren't they just going to go back to Norway? But no, they'll, this is imprinted as their home when they fledge. So they'll come back. Their instinct will be to come back here where they fledged from. So it's kind of artificial fledging. That's why you can't bring adult birds here. You know, they just would go back to Norway. (laughs) So... And you can see some terrific photographs of those young ospreys taking their first flight on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So thanks to Valerie O'Sullivan for giving us permission to use those images. Niall? Great photographs. Valerie's an amazing photographer and she really specialises in these birds of prey. So a real treat to have those and a real treat to see this bird back in its natural environment in Ireland after so long. It's absolutely wonderful. Coupled with the breeding success in Fermanagh, um, it's really coming at a good, very good time for ospreys.
Yes, it is this most welcome news. It's Lockgarten 1954 all over again when the RSVB set up a camera and invited great risk they took and to invited people to come and look at the osprey. Um, they feared that egg collectors might take the eggs and so on and so forth, but think of the wonderful harvest they got in conservation and the effect of, of that on the public opinion in Britain was enormous. The ospreys did wonderful things for conservation advocates for conservation if you like, like we are ourselves in our modest way on the Mooney Show Alright Richard, thank you very much indeed thanks also to Annie Nilana and Terry Flanagan and indeed Niall Hatch That's all we have time for today, our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is John Bella Riley. Visit the website anytime you like rte.ie forward slash Mooney until next time goodbye